Come with me to the Valley of Dry Bones, and I'll tell you a story. The ground is covered with human bones, old dry bones, marrowless bones, bones without the most basic elements of life. The valley is a place of defeat and despair, so look around you. This is the place that people came to die. They didn't come willingly. They fought. They, they fought, but the enemy was overwhelming in power. Babylon crushed them like grain beneath a wheel and then took what was left, leaving only these bones as mute testimony. God did not give Israel the victory. Why didn't God rescue them? Well, I fear you'll find the answer hard to digest. Like a weak old bagel, the answer will stick in your throat. You're right, that's an anachronism. How about, how about this? The answer will sit like a dead camel in your stomach. Is that, is that better? Well, allow me to resume. Why didn't God rescue them? The Lord spoke to Ezekiel and said, When the Israelites were living in their land, they defiled it by the way they lived and acted. I let them feel the force of my anger because of the murders they committed in the land and because of the idols by which they had defiled it. I condemned them for the way they lived and acted, and I scattered them through foreign countries. As I said, not an easy answer to swallow. It's full of condemnation and vengeance and, and divine retribution. It seems too much, a, a punishment too harsh for a merciful God to indulge in, and it, and it seems just, too, in a horrifying way. The God who has destroyed countless enemies to make a place for Israel, now giving the same treatment to Israel. Fair enough, I suppose, but hard. Very hard. I know I'm glad I wasn't there. My bones would have been scattered too without enough meat left on them to tempt a buzzard. Because like my ancestors, I too am unfaithful. I too give my allegiance to false gods. When I step back and see just how faithless I can be, I know my bones belong there in that pile. That I too am deserving of judgment. It's so clear and so awful that I want to turn away. And that's the really frightening aspect of these words from God, isn't it? The way they nudge you into self-examination. Nudge is too weak. How about they shove and kick you into self-examination? I don't welcome such opportunities for self-reflection. I don't enjoy contemplating my own failures, my own disloyalties. Do you? But the story doesn't end there. God... God returned to the place of desolation, and with God came a prophet named Ezekiel. And just to make sure we're all together, let me tell you another story, the story that forms the backdrop to the story that I've been telling you. God called a man named Ezekiel when Ezekiel was a priest living with the exiles near the Chabar River in Babylon, a refugee priest, Ezekiel was, one trying to hold the people together in a foreign land, doing what priests have always tried to do, to keep alive the barest flicker of faith among a disheartened and doubt-filled people. Then God spoke to Ezekiel and spoke to him in a windstorm. Lightning was flashing from a huge cloud and the sky around it was glowing. And where the lightning was flashing, something shone like bronze. And at the center of the storm were four living creatures, kind of like humans, except that each one had four faces and four wings. 
And above the creatures was a dome which sparkled like ice, and above the dome was a throne made of sapphire, and on the throne was another figure, human in form, but glowing hot and surrounded by a bright light. And Ezekiel knew that he was witnessing the brightness of God's glory, and so he put his face to the ground, and that figure, that bright figure, spoke to him. And that's how God called Ezekiel to be a prophet to the people of Israel from a windstorm that blew great and wonderful things, power and brightness and holiness and fire and the glory of God and the calling of the prophet. So God returned to the place of desolation, the valley of dry bones, the valley of the shadow of death, and God brought along Ezekiel, the prophet, whose calling came from out of the wind. And and when they arrived at that desolate valley, God's voice came to Ezekiel again. Ezekiel, human child, can these bones come back to life? Ezekiel answered carefully and correctly, Lord God, only you can answer that. Then God told Ezekiel to talk to the bones and tell them that I, the Lord, will put breath in you and once again you will live. I will wrap you with muscles and skin and breathe life into you and then you will know that I am the Lord. Before Ezekiel had finished speaking, he heard a rattling and a very veritable storm of bones took place. Thigh bones found, ankles found, elbows found, hips found, jaw bones found, forearms found, skulls all flying around in a whirling cloud, bringing order out of chaos, wholeness from what was irredeemably broken. Muscles and skin formed around the skeletons and they were whole and yet there was no life in them. So God spoke again and told Ezekiel to speak to the wind and to tell it to blow from every direction, north, south, east, and west, and to breathe life into those dead bodies so they could live again. And again, as soon as Ezekiel finished speaking, the wind that it was told and, and, and blew over the bodies and they came back to life. They stood up and they were enough to make a large army. And the vision of the transporting or, or whatever it was that had happened to Ezekiel was over with a coda by God by way of explanation. The people of Israel are like dead bones. They complain that they're dried up and have no hope for the future. Tell them, I, the Lord God, promise to open your graves and set you free. I'll bring you back to Israel. And when that happens, you will realize that I am the Lord. My spirit will give you breath and you will live again. I'll bring you home. And you will know that I've kept my promise. And so a promise was made and was kept to the people of Israel, those old dry bones of my story, a a promise sent on the wind, a promise kept by the Spirit of God who breathes a holy wind, a holy breath, a life-giving breath, which blows across a desolate valley where there is no life and no hope of life and brings life again. The Spirit of God breathes and makes a community where there was no community, a people where there was no people. Now, nothing I've said so far ought to surprise us. Not really. We've heard it all before, haven't we? I mean, all the way back at the beginning, somewhere. Do you remember that? Well, let me tell it to you again. Once upon a time, there was nothing nowhere or nothing anywhere. I I get my words mixed up sometimes, especially when I'm trying to describe something that's too big to be described. Nothing nowhere, nothing anywhere. I suppose it amounts to the same thing. Nothing. That's all there was or wasn't. Well, you see what I mean. And then God started speaking. And the Spirit began to blow. And 
Suddenly, from nothing, there came something. No, not just something. Suddenly, from nothing, there came everything. And God made it happen just like that. A word was spoken, the wind blew, and suddenly stars, suddenly planets, suddenly water, suddenly sky, suddenly birds and whales and porcupines and otters, suddenly monkeys and mice and moles and moths, suddenly elephants and egrets and eels and alligators, suddenly, 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 from out of nothing came everything. And as they say, it was all good, including the last things that included that suddenly came to be you and me. There was nothing, and there was everything. And in between the two was God, a word, a wind. So you see what I mean now, don't you, about having seen it all before, about having heard it all before. The stories are the same, right? Nothing to everything, dry bones to a living, breathing people of God, same story. Same God, same story. We've heard it all before. Because it's the only story. The only story we need to know by heart. The story against which every other story unfolds. God sees emptiness. God sees death. And God speaks a word. Lazarus, come out. The spirit blows. And from nothing comes everything. Now, you probably noticed that clever little move that I just made, putting the words of Jesus into God's own mouth. Clever move. A theological move, in fact. Like Jesus and God are one and the same. Not too subtle, I know. But Segways are important when you're telling stories, those little moves that storytellers will use to walk us from one story to the next, like an invisible bridge made... Uh, visible for just an instant maybe, or like the tendons buried under the skin that connect the various parts and make the whole body articulate. That's a metaphor if ever there was one, but enough drawing attention to the guy behind the curtain. There's another story yet to tell, so I'm going to pull the curtain closed again and resume my seat and get back to it. Um, once upon another time, Jesus had three friends. He had more than three, but these three were special. They were the kind of friends that gave more than they got, if you know what I mean. Everywhere he went, Jesus was constantly working, morning, noon, and night. Somebody was tapping at his shoulder, tugging on his robe, waving their hands in his face, trying to get his attention. Oi, Jesus, look over here. Can you fix this? Can you heal that? Can you make this go away? Can you feed me? Can you tell me a story? Can you give me some advice? Is it okay if I introduce you to my friends? All day, every day, people were taking from him. All day, every day. And everywhere he went, Jesus was being poked and prodded, grabbed and jostled, begged and questioned, with no place to go, no time to rest, not even time to pray, without first taking a long hike into the mountains. And even then, it wasn't long before one of the disciples would whisper in his ear, here they come again. It's exhausting just to think about it. Foxes have holes and birds have nests, but... Jesus was on call 24-7. Anyway, Jesus had these three friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, two sisters and a brother. The kind of friends with whom you can relax and let your hair down and maybe even catch a little nap in the afternoon. Friends who give more than they receive, who fed you and listened to you and washed your feet and made your bed, maybe even tucked you in at night. 
Friends who recognized the weariness in your eyes and so didn't make you stay up till all hours just to be sociable, but instead let you turn in whenever you wanted to or needed to. Friends whose home was an oasis, a clean, well-lighted place, sanctuary. That's what Mary and Martha and Lazarus were to Jesus. They were sanctuary. But one day Lazarus got sick. He got, he got very sick, so sick it looked like he wasn't going to make it. And, and Jesus wasn't around, and Mary and Martha needed Jesus. They wanted him to know about his dear friend. They wanted him to come and rescue their brother Lazarus, but Jesus wasn't around. And so they sent for him, and the messenger found Jesus and told him that Lazarus was sick and maybe wasn't going to make it. And the messenger asked Jesus to come quickly and do what only Jesus can do when someone is that sick and so close to dying. But, but Jesus didn't come, not right away. Now, why didn't Jesus come right away? Well, the answer is probably another one of those ones that's going to stick in our throats. He didn't come right away because he wanted to teach his disciples a lesson. He let Lazarus die in order to create a teachable moment. Again, hard to digest. He didn't come to see his dear friend when his friend was sick and maybe dying. And so Lazarus died. And four days later, four, four days later, uh, Jesus came to Mary and Martha's house. Four days later, four days too late. Martha was displeased. She chided Jesus for the delay, and he chided right back. Do you believe or don't you? And Martha said she believed. Mary wept, and maybe her tears were even worse than Martha's anger. Um, Mary fell at his feet. Lord, if you'd been here, if you'd been here, Lazarus would still be alive, and I would not be weeping if you had been here four days ago. And Jesus wept, and, and he asked Mary and Martha to take him to the tomb, to take him to the valley of dry bones, to take him to the place of nothingness. And Martha worried about the smell four days in the grave, four days in the valley. We'll do that to a body. It'll make it smell like death. But open the tomb anyway, never mind the smell. Open the tomb anyway. And Jesus cried out so everyone could hear him, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus came out, all bound up in death's clothes, lurching out into the light. And, and they unwrapped him. I mean, can you imagine what that must have been like, being unwrapped? How bright things must have seemed after four days in the tomb. From death to life, Jesus spoke a word, and Lazarus came to life. Now you see why I made that little segue earlier, why I gave you that little theological quick step? Because if you think about it, this too is the same old story, isn't it? The one at the beginning, and the one in the Valley of Dry Bones, and now this one with Lazarus as the mummy coming from the tomb. They are all the same story. Do you see it? I can see it. Do you, do you see it? Okay, it goes like this. Faced with emptiness, with nothingness, with non-being, all formless and void, as the good book says, God speaks and the Spirit blows and suddenly everything exists. You see? Nothing turns to something because God finds it impossible to let sleeping voids lie. 
faced with a valley filled with death, all dry bones, and that's it except for the dusty earth. God speaks a word and the wind blows and a people is brought into being. See? A valley of bones starts to dance because God finds it impossible to let sleeping bones lie. Faced with a tomb of a dear friend, with the end of life as we know it, with the loss of a dear companion, Jesus speaks for God and the Spirit moves and suddenly Lazarus returns to life. You see, a dead body restored to life because God finds it impossible to let sleeping friends lie. Do you see it now? God is all about giving life. And nothing will or can stop God from doing just that, from giving life. Not the largest nothing ever. Not a collection of dried old bones so dead that even the dogs don't want them. Not a big old stone rolled in front of a tomb and four days' worth of death. Nothing will prevent God from doing what God does best, what God is bound to do, what God is all about. And that's giving life. And that's the story behind all the stories. The story that makes every other story worth listening to. The big story, the one that tracks all the way from Genesis to Revelation, from creation to April 10, 2011. God gives life. God overcomes everything that works against life. God gives life. And this whole time, that's what I've been trying to tell you. See, we all fear death. We all fear death. Some of us more than others. True, but we all fear death. We don't understand it. We can't understand it, not until we experience it. And Well, that seems altogether too late, really, to learn whatever lesson there is to learn. It's a bit after the fact. But we do know what death brings to us. Loss, heartbreak, sadness, grief, mourning, and crying, and pain. That stuff we know and understand all too well. Death is unfriendly, it's unforgiving, it is unkind, and it is universal. And for some of us in this congregation, the pain of death is very immediate. We felt its cold hand in just the last few days. For others of it's a painful memory, um, made all the more painful when we remember that sooner or later it'll touch us again. It seems so daunting, so powerful, so all-encompassing, like a solar eclipse that blots out the sun, death makes everything other than itself almost impossible to see. It shadows long and, and we can't escape it. We all fear death. It's part of being human. And that fear can even make us forget the big story, which is why we need to hear it told over and over again so we can remember because when we remember, when we remember the big story, the story of God giving life no matter what, when we remember that story, we are no longer afraid. Not that we don't have questions or that we suddenly understand it all. Some things are just unknowable, at least for the time being, but, but we're not afraid. Not when we remember the big story. Not when we hear the big story told to us when death has made us forget it. We tell the big story to each other, and we do so over and over and over again so we can remember it when we need it the most. So we can remember that God gives life and that nothing can keep God from giving that life, not even death. Only say the word and we shall be healed. That's what the liturgy says. Only say the word. And God says the word. 
because God finds it impossible to keep quiet in the face of death. And so God speaks. And look what happens. Everything from nothing. A people from dead bones. A friend raised from the dead. That's the story behind every other story. A story that we do well to remember because it won't be long. It won't be long until we see it come to pass. It won't be long before we hear of another empty tomb. It won't be long at all. And so we're not afraid, after all. We're not afraid. When we remember the big story, the one that ends with God bringing life, we're not afraid. We're never afraid. We're not afraid at all. Because God has the final word. And that word, my dear sisters and brothers, that word is life. Amen.